Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 95, Dr. Winfried Corduan, Are All Religions the Same? I'm really happy this week to present the first of two interviews with Dr. Winfried Corduan, a noted scholar of world religions. But before we get to that, I wanted to say thank you to all the people who commented on the blog about my two-part review of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. In particular, David, Paul, John, Roman, Sean, Rivers, and a username Des111168. Thank you, guys. I appreciate all the detailed comments and interaction. It's more than I can summarize here. You might want to look at the comments for episode 94. At one point, I go on a rant about how evangelical apologists seem to have conspired to hide the differences between Christians regarding the Trinity. I'd also like to say thank you to Mr. Nabil Qureshi, who has engaged with me a little bit on Twitter. You can follow me at Twitter at Dale Tuggy, and the link is easy to find on any blog post also. Just look for the Twitter symbol on the right. I also want to say thank you very much to Paul in the UK for his one-time donation. Paul, thank you. I appreciate it. I also want to say thanks to Timothy and Anthony for their recurring donations. Eventually, I'm going to have to hire somebody to do some of the episode editing for me. Uh, It's going to be a bit much with all my other professoring duties. And then there's equipment and hosting and so on. But I appreciate it, gentlemen. If you'd like to donate, you can just find the donate buttons on any blog post for any episode. Before we get to the interview, can I ask you a favor? We have very few ratings and reviews on iTunes, and I think that's keeping a lot of people from finding the podcast. We're coming up on episode 100, and our audience is still pretty small. One reason for that is that we're hardly registering in the iTunes store. If we had a flurry of subscriptions and reviews, I think we might show up a little bit more in the rankings and the searches. So I'd really appreciate it if you would uh, look into that. It just takes five minutes I know that iTunes is a bit of a pain, and so I've put some instructions if you go to trinities.org slash blog slash review, and that link is at the upper right of the blog at all times. There's a little video there where I will show you where you have to click, what you have to do to leave a review. We've got a lot of great things coming up. I have an even more interesting interview with Dr. Corduan next week regarding his thesis that the earliest known human religion is actually monotheistic. Also in the works are interviews with leading Christian thinkers like Dr. Larry Hurtado and Brian Leftow. So without further ado, here's today's interview. Dr. Winfried Corduan is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Born in Germany, he has degrees from the University of Maryland, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Rice University. The author of many scholarly articles, his books include A Tapestry of Faiths, 1993, Islam, A Christian Introduction, 2001, The Holman Old Testament Commentary Volume on First and Second Chronicles, 2004, Pocket Guide to World Religions, 2006, Neighboring Faiths, Second Edition, 2012, and In the Beginning, God, A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism, in 2013. A blogger since 2005, you can find his blog and website at wincorduan.com. Dr. Cordon, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Hello, it's good to be with you. 
Dr. Cordon, how did you become a Christian, and how did you get interested in studying other religions? Well, those are two very different questions, actually. I was born in a Christian home, and I'm very grateful for that. I cannot remember a time when I did not know about Jesus. My parents both were Christians, and so I grew up learning Scripture. When I was eight years old, I made an official commitment, as it were. I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart and uh, cleanse me from my sins. And uh, so if anyone wants to know a particular moment, I guess it was at that time, but I can really say that I was a Christian all my life. That does not mean that there haven't been ups and downs, but the Lord has always been faithful in keeping me close to Him. Even though I was a Christian, and uh, I've never really strayed away from Christianity, as it were, still I'm not a Christian now, intellectually speaking, for the same reasons that I was when I was eight years old, you know, at the time, I believed everything on the basis of the authorities of my parents and Sunday school teachers and so forth. But there came a time when I, like anyone else, had to ask myself, so do I really believe what I think I believe? And uh, so I got uh, interested in Christian apologetics and in uh, Christian philosophy. I eventually went to Rice University where I got my PhD and I was very much interested in 19th century philosophy, the interaction between theology and philosophy. The one thing that I really did not much care about was the study of world religions. As far as I was concerned, there was a world that uh, I really did not particularly want to enter. So you were interested first in apologetics, in defending your faith and uh, understanding the basis of it better, and then only after that you got interested in religions? Yeah, and uh, it was while I was in grad school then, working on my, on my PhD on Hegel and uh, his possible influence on the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner. While I was there at Rice, I also had to take some world religions courses. So I did. It wasn't odious to me, but it still really wasn't anything that I thought I would wind up focusing on for the rest of my life. Then I found a position at Taylor University, which had a very interesting job description. They needed someone who could teach a New Testament survey, various philosophy courses, and the course in world religions. Well, uh, I met those criteria, at least barely, and uh, the one subject that I really had the least knowledge in was world religions. So that's the, co the course that I focused on the most in terms of preparing myself, learning more and more and more, <laughs> until finally that really became the central focus of my study and writing. I still like all the other subjects and uh, I'm always happy to 
uh, write and uh, study anything, but uh, the Lord just has a really great sense of humor, and he directed me to spend much of my professional life in an area that I really had not uh, counted on at all. That's interesting. So in a way, you came to it a little bit later than a person might guess. I mean, you're a very uh, dedicated scholar. You you hit us with a million details. I enjoyed your blog posts you did a while back um, comparing Christ and Krishna because some Hindus, you know, say that Christ and Krishna are the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your blog posts are, here, let me tell you everything about Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> let yeah. me tell you 10 times more than you ever wanted to know. And I mean, there's something I like about that. You don't you don't skip over the dirty details. A person might think you had just always been interested in religions, but it was actually in grad school. Yeah, or even after grad school that uh, it really finally caught on. When I say I worked hard on making that course worthwhile, yeah, that included learning some Sanskrit, some Arabic, a lot of reading, and then a lot of travel as well. Most of what I know I learned after grad school, but I've always been pretty intense in studying and and learning new things and trying at least to make sure that I present the facts correctly. Did learning about other religions and interacting with people in other religions, did that initially cause you any doubt about your own Christian beliefs? Uh, I'm afraid not. <laughs> I'm saying I'm afraid because uh, That's some not people... the politically correct answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was teaching a class a few years ago for, uh, they call it Ivy Tech, basically uh, vocational school and it was a class for faculty on injecting values and so forth into their teaching and I gave an introduction to what I what I knew where I was coming from and of course I mentioned world religions and uh, one lady raised her hand immediately and uh, asked did I come to uh, reconsider the truth of Christianity or the uniqueness of Christianity or something along that line in the light of world religions and I said no and her face just dropped and uh, she gave me a look that was almost anger because she really thought that somehow I should have come to see all the truth that there is in other religions which, well, no religion is totally without truth, but uh, it did not make me change my mind at all concerning the unique truth of Christianity. If anything, it underscored it. It'd be pretty surprising if other religions didn't have a lot of truth in them because religions get passed down through families in large measure, and 
I mean, if they were a total disaster, they they wouldn't be big world religions, you know, like the kind of Satanism that was invented in the 1960s, mm -hmm. where their principle is do whatever you want, do what you will. Well, you know, good luck. Yeah, that's not raising your fly. kids and teaching them that. I mean, yeah. The thing is, people look at religions starting on the wrong end. And you know, that's how they're brought up, I guess, to look at them. They start with the superficial. I heard a radio broadcast once where someone was trying to make a case of the similarity between Christianity and Islam. And uh, the example that the person used was that Christmas trees are green, and green is also the color of Islam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> That's what you call free association. <laughs> that, that is true. The, however, not very relevant. You have to start on the other end. What are the basic issues that the religion addresses? Take the Eastern religions. Most religions have a term for salvation or something similar. So what does salvation mean in Hinduism? It means getting off the cycle of reincarnation and uh, entering a state of permanent bliss, conceivably uh, identity with Brahman, the all, the only true reality in some Hindu schools. So that's what salvation is in Hinduism, very roughly put. In Christianity, salvation has to do with being reconciled to a personal God from whom we're alienated due to our sin, and we rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ who made atonement to that effect. Now, uh, verbal similarities may be there, but uh, if you look at the purpose, the, the main underlying reason for the religion it should be obvious that they cannot be the same thing under just different nomenclature. We are not all climbing the same mountain, just coming from different uh, facets of it. The Hindu mountain is a very different one from the Buddhist one, from the Christian one, from the Zoroastrian one, and so forth. And so if you start there, that doesn't make Christianity uniquely true, that's uh, still a different issue, but it certainly makes each religion unique in the sense that it has its own goals and its own ways of achieving those goals. It seems that so many times when people are discussing religion, whether it's their own or another, they fall into kind of saying what they want it to be or what it should be rather than what it actually is, or at least what it is for most of the people in that community. That is correct. That's a problem, a serious problem, and uh, that was part of the motivation behind my writing Neighboring Faiths in the style that I did, trying to bring in some of my own experiences and uh, the results of my study and travels and so forth to show that... Uh, the stereotypes don't necessarily hold. Let me give you one particular crass example, talking again about uh, Hinduism. 
Uh, I mentioned the idea that for many Hindus, uh, the goal is to achieve oneness with Brahman, and they talk about your deepest self, Atman, which is identical with Brahman. Brahman is the only genuine reality, so it is a kind of pantheism. Everything is God, and you are God on your deepest level, because on your deepest level, you are Brahman. And that's kind of been the standard portrayal of Hinduism in the West. Yes, that's the kind that Westerners are interested in, or at least intellectuals, professors. Yeah, and apologists and so forth. And as a matter of fact, that kind of approach to Hinduism is a, a minority approach. It may be uh, that uh, more Hindus know about it than practice it, but most Hindus are not really concerned with that, but uh, with the gods and uh, possibly one god who may be a, uh, a theistic god, that is a personal god who created the universe. So it's much, much uh, more diverse than we want to think. Along that line, people oftentimes just fuse Buddhism and Hinduism together. And if Hinduism is a pantheism, then surely Buddhism must be. If pantheism means that everything is God, then Buddhism can't possibly be pantheism because philosophically, Buddhism does not hold to a single God in any sense. Uh, in a meaningful sense, ultimately, reality for Buddhism is uh, emptiness, nothingness, the void. And so uh, to consider Buddhism to be pantheism is just to, in that sense, look in, in the totally opposite direction, 180 degrees away from what Buddhism in general actually teaches. there's an assumption that some people have when they come to looking at other religions, and maybe it goes back to people's Christian background. They kind of assume that for any religion, there's one theology. I mean, Christianity is relatively standardized in its doctrine compared to some traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism. And so, they, well, there must be a Hindu view about God or the ultimate reality, or there must be a Buddhist view about right practice or things like that. And it almost always turns out to be more messy than, than you think it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, hold on to your microphone for a second when I tell you that there are probably far more schools of Buddhism than there are Protestant denominations. And furthermore, they differ far more, as you say, than Christian denominations and Christian confessions would from each other. I mean, there are significant differences between, say, Roman Catholicism and the Amish, but still they accept the Bible as the single written scripture. They believe that 
Christ died to make atonement for our sins. They pray to God. They uh, believe in uh, heaven and so forth. And so, uh, you know, even though in many ways they are distinct from each other, still there seems to be a common core. In Buddhism, when you look at the various schools, uh, particularly in the later schools of Mahayana, it's very, very difficult to find similarities that don't appear just a little bit uh, contrived. I might mention there's a website that uh, has a is based on a Christian description and response to Buddhism called Dharma to Grace. Dharma numeral two Grace all in one. The uh, distinction of that site is that uh, it treats the different schools of Buddhism, at least in the major outlines, differently because there simply is no single Buddhism or a single response to Buddhism. Uh, so there are separate sections on uh, Theravada, the traditional school, and Mahayana in general, and then various Mahayana schools like Tibetan Buddhism and Pure Land Buddhism and Soka Gakkai, because they are so radically different from each other, it's, it doesn't make sense really to address them as though they were all just one packet. That's an excellent uh, resource that people should check out. Uh, I'm also reminded of a, another recent book. I don't know if you've seen it. It's by uh, Keith Yandel and Harold Netland. Mm -hmm. It's entitled Buddhism, A Christian Exploration and Appraisal. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the different schools like Dharma to Grace, like you just mentioned. And they also mm -hmm. talk about the ways that Buddhism has been transformed in the last 150 years or so, 120 years and the way it's been kind of sold in the West and how that's changed Asian Buddhism and, oh, it's complicated. Yes. Yeah, and that's a very good book. It's a very excellent treatment of Buddhism. And, uh, yeah, Buddhism has adapted itself very nicely. That's part of the basic nature of Buddhism. Uh, if, <laughs> if there's one thing that pervades all the schools... Uh, on a superficial level, at least, it is that it's extremely adaptable. And so, in the 20th century, a new humanistic Buddhism has emerged, and uh, there are huge temples in Taiwan that uh, have attracted a lot of people with a this-worldly message. We are going to create a pure land on earth now. Uh, say, addressing ecolog ecological concerns and that kind of a thing. And uh, these schools all have goals of uh, being represented all over the world, and uh, they're here. These humanistic schools of Buddhism have uh, established themselves in temples in the United States, and... Uh, one very uh, large one is in the L.A. area, and it's called Silai, which means moving west. And they have temples in L.A., in Boston, in New York, and uh, they, they have their maps and their strategies on how to bring 
Buddhism to the West and make it a Western religion, as it were. There's a principle that is espoused by many Buddhist schools called Upaya, which means skillful means. It says that there is nothing wrong with distorting the truth as long as it ultimately does bring people to the real truth. And it's illustrated by the Buddha himself in the Lotus Sutra. When they talk about taking Buddhism to the West, then uh, they oftentimes say skillful means is part of what we're doing. We can say a lot of things that we may later want to take back. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama would be a good example in my estimation. He says a lot of things along the line of uh, all religions lead to the same place and so forth. But then uh, in more private interviews, he very much uh, believes that ultimately only Buddhism is the true way of getting there. But he certainly has received his share of acclaim for uh, making a lot of ecumenical statements. I don't know what your experience is, but uh, there's a lot more Buddhism around in the United States than I think a lot of Christians want to recognize at this point in time. It seems like not a week goes by that I don't hear about someone talking about son, daughter, nephew, whatever, who uh, in some way was a Christian in some kind of superficial sense and has now decided to become a Buddhist in some kind of, again, superficial sense. Mostly it's, I'm picking what I like about Buddhism and leave the rest behind kind of a thing. It's a do-it-yourself religion. But still, we're very concerned uh, with the supposed influx of Islam into this country But I'm not sure that uh, on the level of personal beliefs, that's really going to have much of an impact. But Buddhism is taught in uh, the universities as a legitimate philosophy in ways that people would not be allowed to teach Christianity. Well, and like you mentioned, it's in in many cases highly adapted Buddhism adapted to what Westerners are interested in. I mean, it's it's often portrayed as just, you know, we should be compassionate and we should not worry. Right. And uh, just kind of good vibes and good feelings. And mm-hmm. uh, some a lot of times students are shocked in my world religions class when I go through traditional practices and talk about monks and nuns and uh, the different rules that they traditionally live by and when they read mm-hmm. uh, some of the, the Pali Canon writings, they, they thought it was just kind of, again, a, a way to be more at peace, a way to be nicer to people. Yeah. That's how it's sold since, since World mm-hmm. War II. And it's also sold as the kind of, um, it's a religion that for people that are sick of theism, there's, there, you know, there's no authority who's going to tell you what to do, there's no hell. Yeah, that, <laughs> that last part is one that I hear a lot. Well, I prefer Buddhism because Buddhism doesn't have hell. Sorry, but uh, Buddhism is pretty big on hell, actually, as one of the 
stages of reincarnation on the Dharma to Grace website under uh, Tibetan Buddhism. There's a lengthy description of hell in Buddhism, and it uh, comes up in other places as well. Uh, there's no religion that you can really adapt as a toy to play with, as a kind of relaxation, as a way of selling computers or winning basketball championships. Uh, religions deal with ultimate things. If you just play around with them, you're self-deceived. The beliefs always hang together in a coherent pattern, at least for a specific school, there's a kind of coherent pattern, and then the practices only make sense in light of the beliefs. So if you just pick a few here and a few there, right, it yeah. doesn't make any sense after a while. And they, they all come with eternal consequences, at least in their teaching. So, Dr. Cordwan, what do you say to people who say, aren't all religions the same? As I stated earlier, you, you can say that meaningfully, just so long as you ignore all the differences between them. <laughs> but to look at the differences, you should start with the basics of what is the purpose of the religion, for any religion, uh, what are its basic assumptions, what problem is the religion trying to solve, and uh, once you start there, the differences just simply cannot be ignored unless you do so willfully. There's just no way that you can seriously, without just glossing over all the facts, make the Christian notion of salvation by grace through faith in Christ the same thing as attaining enlightenment in Buddhism. Now, in some circles and in some books that you might read, there's a kind of pluralism that's sort of dogmatically assumed. Pluralism being that in some sense... One religion is as good as another, uh, or they're equal in value, or they're saying the same thing or something. And one of the ideas that's there is that you have to separate the kind of spiritual essence, which might just be an experience, from all the trappings. And okay, the trappings are different. They wear different styles of clothes. Their services are on a different day. Their music is different. But the essence, now that's really the same. Another aspect of it also is that people are convinced that we're going to be intolerant unless we adopt the view that one religion is as good as any other. Yeah. The uh, question is, what is the essence? Okay. I have to repeat again that the essence of, say, Hinduism, perhaps identity with Brahman, is very different than the essence of Christianity, which is reconciliation with a personal God. Now, if you want to find some essence 
that lies behind those two religions, then you're going to have to invent one. Other than that, there's just nothing that you can do. So a famous example, of course, is John Hicks' philosophy that underneath all religions is the one reality, which he calls the real, capital R-E-A-L, and all religions are ultimately ways of getting into the right relationship with the real. So what else can you tell us about the real? Well, not much. It's there, but it's beyond our knowledge. It's just there, and we relate to it, and it makes us nicer people. So in order to buy into a scheme like that, first of all, I have to say that what the Buddhist says he believes, John Hicks says he doesn't really believe, because he really, even though he doesn't know it, believes in the real. He doesn't know what's really going on. Yeah, and same with a Christian. I don't really believe in God and Christ, even though I think so on a superficial level, but I really believe what John Hick dictates, I believe, namely putting myself in a right relationship to the real. Now, is that tolerance? I don't think so. I think that is really the height of religious imperialism. John Hick and people like him are really telling religious people what they do believe and that they are deluded in thinking that even the very core of their religion is what they hold on to. So uh, that saying that includes then also the response to possible intolerance. So by imperialism, you don't mean literal imperialism, but kind of intellectual, like, I'll tell you what you really think, rather than finding out what people think. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant by that term. Religious imperialism, by that I mean uh, trying to conquer, as it were, intellectually, religiously, other religions. You can call it religious colonialism, perhaps also. It's an expression that a friend of mine uses. When I uh, speak to a Hindu or Buddhist, I may mention a concept. They say they agree with it because they have already rewritten it in their mind to fit in with their personal beliefs, with their Buddhism or whatever. And so in, in a sense, they've imperialistically taken over my belief and made it theirs by rewriting it as a, a part of uh, their beliefs. And I think the so-called pluralists like uh, John Hick and others are really uh, being very imperialistic in the sense that they say that they, the Western scholars who have analyzed other religions critically through their own lens, can now tell the rest of the world what it is that they genuinely believe, whereas they, the religious believers had no inkling that they actually believed in the real. They thought they were worshiping God or Allah. Right. It looks like it does take some chutzpah. To, I'll tell you what's really going on, mm -hmm. and uh, it turns out to be a, an interesting story. I think generally people don't 
know about Hick. Um, all my philosopher friends do. It's it's kind of a, a boldly, almost ingeniously developed uh, theory. It's it's maybe the best developed kind of pluralism in Western scholarship. I think there are objections to it that are good objections, but. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the love affair that 20th century scholarship has had with John Hick has shown the uh, poverty of uh, religious studies in many universities, in many settings, that, that they would accept something as uh, inadequate and celebrated as uh, the answer to uh, establishing a religious pluralism. Well, it's interesting you should say that. Now, I mean, his his pluralist theory is one thing, but when you read him, he does, like in your work, set out a lot of pretty precise and accurate details about what's going on in various religious traditions. And yeah, this is different than the kind of loosey-goosey, uh, literature-based, uh, just exploration of myths that's become so popular. Mm -hmm. That's due to Eliada and other people like uh, Joseph Campbell. Uh-huh. Just kind of vague vague ideas and archetypes and they're not interested in precisely telling you what the difference is between the traditions and as far as belief or practice. You're referring to Iliade and company with saying they're not interested in the details? Yeah, in the sense that they're you know, it's all about storytelling and kind of finding finding your meaning in these recurring characters mm -hmm. and patterns and so on. Well, they're trying to explore the subconscious. This is some similarity to John Hick in the sense that they are looking at the external superficial and, again, are trying to find something underneath that. I mean, if you read Iliad's books, uh, a lot of what he writes is just one descriptive sentence after another trying to get to his basic theme of uh, all these things are hierophanies, manifestations of the sacred. Again, there's a little bit of heavy-handedness there too, but it certainly is a different approach from uh, the, uh, say, John Hick type of pluralism. The thing is, scholars know about John Hick, common people would not, but it's the same kind of thinking that uh, is popular, say, with Opry Winfrey and in television dramas and comedies and what have you. Uh, it's become very much a part of our national philosophy, this kind of inclusivism that tries to say, well, we all ultimately believe the same thing, whether we know it or not. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step -step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? 
If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Dr. Corduan, what advice would you give to Christians who want to really understand other religions and go beyond a superficial level? You begin by reading neighboring faiths and... uh, I agree. That's a good start. Okay. Uh, a little attempt at humor. <laughs> but uh, really, you need to look at several different perspectives. There's nothing that takes the place of reading uh, some of the original material. Now, in order to prepare yourself and not get yourself goofed up, it may be a good idea to read a Christian book and it doesn't have to be one of mine, but uh, so that uh, you, you can prepare it, uh, a little bit knowing how to approach these books, these other religions. More than one time, I have had people send me an email or in conversation say that they would like my recommendation on books on Islam. And they've told me the books that they already have And every one of them was written by a Christian, from a Christian point of view. And uh, some of them are better than others. But sooner or later, if you don't read the Islamic perspective, uh, you're just not going to get it. Sooner or later, you're going to have to read a book by a Muslim who is presenting and possibly defending his faith. The same thing is true for other religions. Yes, prepare yourself. There's no point in studying other religions if you're not secure in your own faith. And if you cannot make a reasonable case for the need for salvation, for why we believe in one God in three persons, and uh, why we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I mean. That needs to be in place. But then it's necessary to really understand other religions and to really be able to be a Christian witness is to understand what they believe, what they practice from their point of view, so that you're not just attacking a straw man, as it were. You're not just immediately when they say something, uh, coming back with an argument that may demonstrate that you really don't know a whole lot about that religion. So that would be my advice. You want to listen to them explain their own beliefs and their own practices and their own words uh, so that you're not just going with sort of off ideas that you started with. Yeah, and it may be very startling because they may not say anything that uh, you would have read in any descriptions, even by adherents of those religions in their own material. 
what people practice, sometimes we refer to it as folk religion, is oftentimes very, very drastically different than anything that you read in any of the books. Many uh, Muslims are really practicing a kind of animism. Now, uh, the, the Muslim teachers, of course, do not like that, but it's a fact that uh, there's a lot of syncretism in Islam, and what they practice really has more to do with uh, warding off the evil eye and the jinn, the evil spirits, and so forth. So uh, you're going to wind up hearing things and experiencing things that do not fit in with the textbook descriptions at all. There's a site on an island right outside of Singapore, a Muslim shrine. I won't go into the whole background now, that would take too long but it's set up like a tomb for a Muslim saint and his wife and daughter who have disappeared. So you have the Muslim symbolism there, and then you also have incense burners and uh, fortune-telling equipment and uh, the oven where you burn paper, all of which is associated with Chinese Taoism coming to uh, a Muslim who lives in that kind of world means that uh, you really have to go beyond what you find in a lot of Christian apologetics texts. Dr. Cordoan, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure. This week's thinking music has been Neo Zen by Ketza. You can hear that whole track unadulterated at this blog post at trinities.org. Also on that blog post, you'll find a whole bunch of relevant links. We've got links to his books, to his several websites, to another interview with him, and various things that we mentioned in our conversation and a YouTube video which features Dr. Cordoan performing his original song, United Vegetarian Meat Market. In his words, quote, this is a satirical song about people looking for an easy custom-made religion, end quote. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.